Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church, Gainesville. It's wonderful to be here with the saints. It's always incredible when we join together and join together in worship. We join together as our hearts are knitted together in love through the Spirit of God. Well, today, as you know, we have been making our way through Ephesians chapter 5. We, in our study of Ephesians, we are getting closer and closer toward the end. Uh, we've been in this, I think this is the 49th sermon, uh, with some breaks, and had a break for the Word of God series, and maybe another series or two uh, in the middle. But this is, uh, we are continuing this study, we, we've made it our way to Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. As you know, the Word of God is amazing. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to the verse-by-verse exposition of the Word. Uh, this means that we pick a book of the Bible and start from verse 1 until we finish the entire book. We don't skip verses or even words. As a matter of fact, I'm even praying about the next uh, book of the Bible that we would go to. I have a couple of ideas and thoughts, and so... Uh, just be praying for me as I make that, as I make that uh, decision. Uh, well, this past Sunday, we were in Ephesians 5.3, and this, this week, we'll pick right up where we left off. As all of you know, unless you've under, been under a rock, we had the election last Tuesday. Uh, I've had a couple of different pastors who I talk to on a far, fairly regular basis, and a couple of days ago, one of them asked me if I would be addressing the election. I told him that I would address it, but I also told him that I didn't need to change my text to do so. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 through 5 fits perfectly with uh, the news of the election. You see, we believe that the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of God who guides us, even in the selection of the text, even in all those months ago, that in choosing to go into Ephesians, he knew that we would be exactly here today. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't take time to do a series or to even address some topic, but we do trust that God knows and that he guides us in all that we do. Now, most of you know, Phil mentioned it earlier, that our, our Facebook page was removed by Facebook last week. They said that we violated some, some of our content, violated their community standards. They did not tell us which contact, content that is, what, which was in violation, or even why it was in violation specifically. On Friday, the content was completely restored, again, with no explanation. We believe that potentially the offending material may have been last Sunday's sermon in which I preached on sexual immorality. And we all know that that's a, that is an incredibly controversial topic. But we'll probably never know exactly why the page was taken down or even why it was put back in place. But I would say that it underscores the spiritual battle that we are up against. I truly hope, I truly do hope that this page, that that page was removed in error. Even so, we must remain vigilant to preach the truth of, the, of God's Word. We must stand firm on the truth. We cannot shrink back in fear. We must, using the words of Paul, we must walk worthy 
of the calling with which we have been called with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And we must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I know, I know, I'm certain, that there will be calls for unity in the days to come. Unity around uh, the, the platform that is being presented to us. But we need to understand, as the church, that the only true unity, the only unity that matters, is unity of the Spirit. As you know that, as you know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago. In those verses, in, in, in writing that letter, Paul, especially in Ephesians 4.1, described himself as the prisoner of the Lord. The Apostle Paul was indeed a prisoner carrying out his mission of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He didn't, he did not shrink back from declaring the good news of Christ to the Gentiles. He even did so as he faced great opposition. In Acts chapter 20, on his way to Jerusalem to be arrested, Paul stopped to see the Ephesian elders. And during that visit, he told them that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole purpose of God. Now that stance had put him in a position of being arrested, yet he did not fear. Here's the point. We don't know what's next for us. The Lord may give us many more years of relative peace. We hope that is the case. For now, we can freely preach the gospel even if certain subjects may land us in trouble, right? I mean, we, last week I preached on sexual immorality, and potentially that landed us in a little bit of Facebook trouble. But we have to understand, we still have the freedom to preach the gospel, and we need to do so without shrinking back, without fear. This is the reason I stand up here every Sunday week after week, preaching and teaching. Believe me when I tell you, I am not any different from you. I have, my wife will tell you, I have my fears and I have my anxieties. Sometimes I even wonder if this is my last Sunday preaching the Word of God. But every Sunday I preach as if it were my last. In the words of Richard Baxter, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. End quote. I hope that you will join me in living your life as if these are the last days, even your last days. We can hope that God gives us many more days of relative peace, but we cannot be assured. Friends, the backdrop of this week's text in Ephesians was the suffering and persecution endured by Paul for preaching the Word of God. He always preached without fear, as if it was his last time. We could very well be entering a time of similar suffering and persecution, but that's quite all right. 
we're still called to love those who oppose. Right? In the words of John Calvin, whatever a person may be like, we must still love them because we love God. There are no exceptions to this truth. Let me just say this, as Paul states in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray for the sermon this morning and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we do want to pray for those in charge of our country as they strive to be seen, as they strive for some level of unity, worldly unity that is. as they strive to show that they are willing and able to lead. Lord, I pray that we as the church would understand that you are on your throne and that your kingdom will endure forever. Lord, we come to you this morning. We want to pray for President-elect Biden if it continues that way. We want to pray for the future Vice President Harris. Lord, we pray for them. We pray, Lord, that you would impress upon their heart that you are king and that their job is to rule according to your good pleasure. I just want to pray for President Trump, for Mike Pence, the Vice President. Father, I pray that they would transition, if that is your will, that they would transition away with dignity. That, Lord, they would trust in you. That they would trust in your will. Father, we thank you this morning as church that we can trust in you, and that we can go about doing the things that you would have us do, first and foremost, preaching the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, the good news of the kingdom which has come. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I said earlier, unless you're living under a rock, you're aware of Tuesday's presidential election. The election took place on Tuesday, but it is highly unlikely, well, I just wrote this yesterday, it's highly unlikely we would see the full results for several weeks or even days or even weeks, though it seems like that Biden, Joe Joe Biden, will be the next president of the United States. But we do know that there are going to be legal wranglings For those of you who were paying attention to the 2000 presidential election between Al Gore and George Bush, you may recall that it was several weeks before a winner was declared. This this whole thing may sound familiar to you. On election night, it was unclear back in 2000 who had won, with the electoral votes of the state of Florida still undecided. Thankfully, we've got our act together now, and we knew pretty much at the beginning, end of the night which way we had gone. But back then, it wasn't the same. The return showed that Bush had won 
Florida by such a close margin that state law required a recount. A month-long series of legal battles led to a highly controversial 5-4 Supreme Court decision, Bush versus Gore, which ended the race. With the recount ended, Bush won Florida by 537 votes, a margin of 0.009%. As you may expect, the Florida recount and the subsequent litigation resulted in major post-election controversy. Ultimately, Bush won 271 electoral votes, one more than a majority, despite Gore receiving over a half million more votes in the popular vote category. If you remember back then, you know that, they, that we were a vastly different country just 20 years ago. The current 2020 elections has similar quality with qualities with much more at play. As you know, Joe Biden has been projected the winner, but there are accusations out there of cheating. Instead of one state in question, there are at least six states with contested results. There are accusations of wrongdoing from both sides of the political spectrum. There is even the, the potential for mass riots depending upon how these results turn out possibility of a peaceful end to the election seems to be slim, though we can be hopeful. As Christians, we must look at this situation through a biblical lens. We know that God in heaven will ultimately decide who will take office on January 20th, 2021. We also know, that, as I said earlier, that God remains on his throne and that Christ will build his church. These truths will not change no matter who sits in the Oval Office, whether Joseph Biden or Donald Trump or Kamala Harris or any other person. As we approach the aftermath of this election, we must pray again that it will be decided in a peaceful way. But here's the point. <clears throat> here's the point. We must not succumb as Christians to wanting our way so much that we become greedy. Greedy for power and the hope of a political solution. Coveting political power, even when we believe that we were right, even when we believe the other side is wrong. As Christians, we must not stoop to speaking threats or repeating, let me say this slowly, Repeating idle gossip. We must make sure that we bridle our tongues as we speak concerning all of these situations. We may or may not like the outcome, and we may even, and we may disagree with the other side. We may be concerned about the future of our country, the future of our children, and the future of the church, but we must continue to give thanks to God who is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Let me read Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you 
as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage the believers and to remind them of their immeasurable blessings in Christ Jesus. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, before Christ, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. But God, in His infinite mercy, had saved them. Now they were in Christ. They were new creatures living for a new heavenly king. They had been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies. These blessings were theirs despite who was the earthly king. Does that sound familiar to you? These blessings were theirs even if they suffered for the gospel. These blessings were theirs even if they died for the cause of Christ. As fellow Christians, we share in these immense blessings and must remember them. The fact that they were a new creation in Christ changed everything for them. According to Ephesians chapter 4, they were to walk worthy of their calling in Christ. As part of this worthy walk, they were called not to walk as the Gentiles walk. They were to walk in the newness of life, having their minds renewed in Christ. The Gentiles, on the other hand, had given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity. Does that sound familiar? But the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, were not to live this way. They were to flee these things. According to Paul, they were to mirror God by walking in love. In Ephesians 5, chapter 1, Paul reminded the Ephesian church that they were beloved children of God. And as beloved children, they were to walk in love, love for God and love for neighbor. By the way, our neighbors include those who differ from us politically. Now let me make sure I say that again. Our neighbors include those of us who differ politically. Just this past few days, I've been appalled at the gloating by people who claim to be Christians that their side won. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Jesus himself taught us in Matthew 5, 43-45, he said this, You have heard it, that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Get, get it, beloved children? For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the point is, no matter what the results of this election, no matter what the fallout of this election, it doesn't matter. As Christians, we're called to love one another, and we're called to love God, and we're called to love neighbor, and oh, by the way, that includes your enemies, and even those who persecute you. Love those who differ from us, and we're to pray for those who even cause our suffering. We do so because we're beloved children. We do so because we know that God and His love will cause all things to work together for our good as believers, for those who are called according to His purpose. In the words of Jerry Bridges, he says this, God in His love always wills what's best for us, end quote. 
So with the result of this presidential election or the Senate races or whatever we're talking about, God in his love always wills what's best. In his goodness, he willed to send his son to die on the cross. And as such, we are to meditate on Christ, who is our example. That's chapter, chapter 5, verse 2. Christ loved us and he died for us. According to Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, Look to, to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, we are to look to Christ. No matter how the next few months and years look, even if the church suffers persecution, we are to look to Christ so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. But as we walk in love, we must also remember to do so in purity. As such, Paul gives two marks of those who will have no part of the kingdom of God in Christ. This is our first sermon point this morning. You must not be immoral in your conduct. Now, we started this point last week by saying that Paul was calling the church not to even allow these sins to be among the saints. It is not fitting that they exist among us. It's quite uh, specifically, the sin of immorality, impurity, or greed. These things should not characterize us in any way. It's interesting that my sermon caused a stir last week because I primarily applied what I taught. I primarily applied to the church. Not those who are listening over the internet. Not those who are listening on Facebook. Primarily, it's the church that we're concerned about. We, are ex- we expect these behaviors from those who are, un- are not believers. We expect them to act that way. They are still, if they're unbelieving, they're still dead in their sin- transgressions and sins. It is our hope that we can win them to Christ. But as the church, we are called to be pure in our conduct and our speech. First, we're not to be sexually immoral. Last week, we defined this immorality as sexual in nature. We defined sexual immorality as anything that deviates from God's perfect design for human sexuality. And I didn't just pick on one group. Hopefully, most of us, if not all of us, walked out of here with our toes stepped on. Now, we didn't dig deep in what constitutes committing sexual immorality, so I, wanna, I want to touch on that this morning. The bar is much higher than you may think. In Exodus 20:14, God told the Israelites that they were not to commit adultery. This was one of the Ten Commandments. In Proverbs 6:32. It says, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy, he who would do it destroys himself. In Jeremiah 13, 27, God told them, as for you, 
As for your adulteries and your lustful nayings, the lewdness of your prostitutions on the hills of in the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will you remain unclean? You see, you see, God takes seriously the purity of his people. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you. What would he say, beloved, to the church? The prohibition against these things is not limited to the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And then he says this, this is Hebrews 13, 4. He says this, For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Do you fear Him? Do you fear God? Well, we must understand that God has a high standard for what constitutes adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he goes on to say this, if your right eye causes you or makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go in hell, into hell. In other words, we must not take God's prohibition against sexual immorality lightly. Yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, every one of us are sinners. Each and every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. Present tense. Present tense. We currently sin and fall short of the glory of God. But we must never, ever take His grace for granted. May we sin that grace abounds. What did Paul say? Romans chapter 6. May it never be. May it never be. Let's look at the other two terms which Paul uses to describe impurity or immorality, as what I called it. Secondly, we are to be not to be impure or unclean. That's verse chapter 5, verse 3. We briefly looked at this word in 4.19 where Paul said that the Gentiles had given themselves over to the sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. This word indicates a general defilement of the whole personality. This defilement has tainted the whole person and impacts every aspect of their lives. The sexual <coughs> revolution, which started in the 60s, has not only brought free love into our society, but has also brought further impurities. Angie and I lived in Nevada for 10 years, and there was a place called Sand Mountain near our home where where people would go and ride all-terrain vehicles of every type and to party and to drink. Every year, the gatherings just got worse and worse to the point where drugs and alcohol, you know, uh, during these times, especially Labor Day and other holidays, these, these, uh, the drugs and alcohol were widespread and expected. Now, if we also lived in Nevada, and there was also the famous Burning Man Festival. 
Every year, up to 70,000 people converge in the Nevada desert uh, for a huge party. The gathering always culminates in a symbolic burning of a large wooden effigy. The event has been described as a beacon of hope for humanity and a spiritual journey, but it's nothing more than a literal orgy of sexual encounters and substance abuse. Even the New York Times, even the liberal New York Times says this, that the public perception of 50,000 stoned, half-naked hippies being representative of Burning Man is mostly accurate. Drugs are technically illegal, but easier to find than Halloween candy on October 31st. That's what the New York Times said about it. Of course, not everyone who attends these events participate in the debauchery and uncleanness, but these things characterize those events. More and more people participate in these activities, then they return to their normal lives as if nothing ever happened. I guess you can believe what happens in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada stays there, but don't believe it. That's not true, and as Christians, we are not to participate in these types of deeds of the darkness. We are not to participate in those things that bring impurity. According to Paul, in verse five, chapter 5, verse 3, we're also not to be greedy or covetous. The word translated greedy or covetous has the idea of selfishness to an extreme degree. The idea is wanting what you want and being willing to stop at nothing until you get it. This could be a, a, a desire for your neighbor's wife, which ties the term back to the prohibition against sexual immorality. This could be a desire for material uh, possessions, including land and houses and money. Now, these things are usually coveted for the purpose of power. These things are desired, and they're attained, unfortunately, at the expense of others. Those who fall into this sin are more concerned for their own needs than they are for others. They, they then, therefore, fail to share in what God has provided. And see, it's not our stuff. This is not our world, but this is God's world and all that it contains in it, that's in it. Therefore, when we're, given, when we're given things by God, God has provided those things, and we're called to share in those things that we're given freely, freely share. You see, those who are covetous and those who are, who are greedy, they don't trust that God has provided these things, and they don't trust that God will pro- continue to provide those things. You understand what I'm saying? The point is, is that they close their hearts because they think that it's a closed system. They think that it, there's a limited amount. There isn't a limited amount with God. Amen. Therefore, they close their hearts to their brethren in need. It's not to be. We are not to be this way in God's kingdom. This truth is underscored in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 5.10 states this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will 
He who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. It's the steam off of a coffee cup. Here today, gone tomorrow. You'll never have enough if money is your, is, is your goal. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. So if you trust in your riches according to God, you will fall. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, he says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things. Instruct them, this is those who are rich, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of that which is life indeed. You know what life indeed is? It's Christ. It's Christ. And it's a willingness, because of our love for Christ, it's a willingness to share with, what we, with, with the things that we've been given. And I just read earlier Hebrews 13.4, which spoke of the marriage bed. But right after that, in 13.5, it says this, Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Again, we see there that God will richly supply all that we need. Early in my Christian walk, several years ago, it dawned on me how much richer I am than my Lord Jesus was when he was on earth, physically. That is in earthly goods. George Mueller captures this thought with the following quote. He says this, It ill becomes the servant to seek to be rich and great and honored in that world where his Lord was poor and mean and despised. End quote. So the point is, is that we ought not be seeking to be rich, but we should be seeking to be rich in good works as we give away the things that we have been given. And there's no doubt as Christians that we may be materially blessed by God. When we work hard, that is the that is the result many times. But will you close your heart to God and to your neighbor? Or will you freely share the blessings you have been given? I'm always reminded of James chapter two in this regard. James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith, that type of faith, that faith that doesn't have works, can that type of faith save him? And he says this, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. You know, people get all upset with James. Well, are you, are you teaching work salvation? Absolutely not. What he is saying there is that true faith, faith that is true, will have works. It will be result in good works. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God would give us true good works to walk in them. 
that He created beforehand. He has made us new so that we would walk in these, uh, these, these works that He's given us. The truth is, brethren, we cannot claim, you cannot claim to have a true faith in Christ if you close your heart to the brethren. Therefore, <coughs> therefore, we are called to be moral in our conduct, if you will, sexually pure, pure in our life and sharing, as opposed to those who are sexually immoral, impure, and greedy. Let's look at the second mark, the second mark of those who will not have, who will have no part of the kingdom of Christ and of God. You must not be impure in your communication. Those who are impure will have in their in, in their communication will not inherit the kingdom of God in Christ. Look at your text, verse four. It says this, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which is which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. As many of you are aware, our speech is one usually one of the first things that changes when we become Christians. True Christians <coughs> True Christians will no longer speak in vulgarities. I remember before I was a Christian. My mouth was unclean. But when Christ saved me, my speech changed almost overnight. There were times, for sure, that I struggled with my words. But by and large, I no longer use vulgarity in my speech. This makes sense because God has changed our hearts <clears throat> and this has a profound effect on our tongues. We know that when we, when we become Christians, God changes us from within. Romans 3 describes our state before God before we become believers in Christ. It says in chapter 3, verse 10, this is Romans 3.10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Then it says this in verse 13, Their tongue, or their throat that is, is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That is the unbeliever. That is the sinner who has not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and been cleansed in their heart so that they, their words match their heart. Their words match their heart, but it's in a negative way. The Lord Jesus himself taught in Matthew 15.10. He says this, and again, Matthew 15.10, After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. He goes on to explain this parable in verse 17. When, when he was asked, he says this in verse 17, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man, 
The point that he was making is, is that it's our heart that's the problem. We can wash our hands all we want, but we're never going to wash the defilement off. James speaks of the tongue in James chapter 3. He says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as, as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Then he says this, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. I mean, his point is, is that we all have these problems. It's not just, it's not just you, it's not just me, we all have these problems with our tongue. We're not perfect. But he says this, Now if we put the bits of, into the horse's mouth so that they will obey, we direct their entire body as well. Look at, uh, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by the strong winds, are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. You want to talk about tearing down a church? You start flapping the lips, and that's what will happen. Because the tongue is a fire, and it'll set aflame uh, everything. It says this, the, the tongue is a fire. Verse 6, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Does that not sound like the Lord Jesus and what he was saying earlier? And sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. He goes on, verse 7, For every species of beast and birds and of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have made in the, been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? The point that, that James is saying is that we use our tongue to bless with, we use our tongue to curse with. Such a powerful thing. Clearly we need to take heed of our words, right? We need to take heed of our words because they communicate much more than we think that we're saying. They communicate what is flowing from our hearts. James says we need to control it. If we can control our tongue, we can control our entire body. As such, we are to avoid certain types of language or communication. We need to Avoid impurity in our speech or in our communication. First, Paul says that we must avoid vulgarness. This word has the idea that it's that which is shameful or disgraceful, that which is dishonoring. The, this word can be used for our conduct, which points back to the, to the previous verse, and a, but it also can be applied to our language, which applies again to the present verse. As Christians, we want to avoid those things which are shameful and dishonoring. We are to avoid participating in them or even discussing these things. Next, Paul says we need to avoid, we must avoid foolish talk. This is the Greek word 
morologia, where we get the word moron or moronic. Logia is the translation for word, so the idea is moronic words or foolish words, senseless talk, moronic talk. This may refer not only to senseless talk, but to talk that is empty or speculative. This This is the type of talk that detracts from the issues of the faith and is not edifying, but it is nothing more than foolishness. Next, we must, as Christians, avoid coarse jesting. This could be defined as sarcastic ridicule. This language, this is the the language that cuts people down or embarrasses them. It embarrasses both the object of the ridicule and even those who are listening. You might say that this this coarse jesting is humor in bad taste. This could be the use of abiding sarcasm. As believers in Jesus Christ, our words should be used to build up people, to build up situations, as as opposed to tearing down and destroying. As Christians, we're not free to use humor and sarcasm to tear down other people, even when they oppose us. We are also not we are also to avoid dirty and sexual jokes, which the world loves so much. Just get into a, a group of young men, and you'll see what I mean. We are to avoid these things. This doesn't mean that Christians can't employ humor. It means that we must avoid talk which is in bad taste, including bad joking. Now, as you know, we have the Babylon Bee, which was started by Christians. And most of the humor found there is in good taste. I enjoy it myself. But as a Christian site, they have to be very careful. They have to be very careful to make sure they don't cross that line, to make sure they're not getting into this coarse jesting or sarcasm. Memes, memes are another source of humor. And I know that some of you, many of you enjoy them as well. But we have to be careful to make sure that we're not enjoying and we're not participating in those things that are distasteful. You especially need to avoid humor with sexual overtones. Again, these things should not even be named among us. A few years ago, there was a popular Reformed pastor who used, a, used worldly language in his preaching. He wanted to keep things real. But as Christians, we must avoid the temptation of using the current vernacular in, in an effort to keep it real. Sad. Excuse me. Sadly, he fell a few years ago. Just a few weeks ago, there was another popular Reformed pastor who will use some questionable language in a sermon to describe the current apostasy we see in the church. He used a very popular word within our culture to call these churches out. He even argued that Paul used this type of language. In Philippians 3.8, Paul compared his former legalistic practices in Judaism to dung or excrements. Now, I completely agree with this pastor on the point that he was making, but his use of language detracted from what he was saying. There are other ways to make a point 
without using worldly language. And I know this is especially true among the youth, right? They want to be, they want to be on the edge. You don't have to be on the edge. You just have to speak the truth. As Christians, as Christians, we must be careful not to be worldly. As Christians, we must be incredibly cautious in our use of language. We must not use our tongues in ungodly ways. Paul says that these things, look at your text back in Ephesians 5 through 4, these things are not fitting. They're not fitting for us. We need to be serious, sober-minded. We must not be characterized by these things. There is no occasion for Christians to use these types of languages or devices. Even when persecution comes, we must mind our tongues. We must use edifying language. language. Look at your text. Paul says, but rather the giving of thanks. So we don't use that, those types of things, those types of devices, that type of language, but we use our tongues for the giving of thanks. Our speech must not be used for things that are not fitting, but for thanks especially to God for all that He has done. If we're spending our time giving thanks to God, then we won't be participating in the words and deeds of darkness. And instead of our speech tearing down others, we are to use our speech for the building up of the body of Christ by giving thanks to God for who He is and what He has done among us. This is the type of speech that characterizes the kingdom of God. Paul himself models these things in his letters. Let me give you a couple examples. In this very letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wrote, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in in my prayers. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, We give, give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You know, you can be certain that life was hard on the Apostle Paul. He saw a lot of stuff. He endured a bunch of stuff. But he didn't stoop to using language to tear down. He used edifying language. Even when he was disappointed or angry, he carefully chose his words. We need to be uh, modeling ourselves after Paul. He was to the point when he needed to draw attention to error, but he was quick to praise. Paul finishes out 2.5 by saying, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or who is, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says that you can be assured that those who are characterized by these sins will not have an inheritance in the kingdom. He is speaking of the person who is characterized by at least one of these sins. These people do not have an inheritance. He's, talking, he's not talking about the true Christian who briefly fails in one of these categories. He's talking about the man or woman who habitually sins in one of these ways without remorse and without repentance. He's talking about the immoral or the impure person. He's talking about the covetous or greedy man. This man is an idolater. Just like Esau who sold his birthright for some stew. For the greedy, that which is coveted becomes the center of their life and their worship. 
And this is true whether it's money or material things or power. And, and this man's life created things become more important than the Creator. You see, they're willing to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for, the, for a corruptible idol. And I would argue that these sins go hand in hand. This type of person, it's an indication. This, their speech is an indication of the vileness of their heart. Therefore, they are nothing but idolaters who have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And we ought not be like them in any way. We ought to walk in purity, both in our conduct and in our communication. Church, Paul began this section with a charge to walk in love as God's beloved children. When we consider the troubles of the day, we must remember that we are children of God, that He will never forsake us or leave us. We must remember that if... If we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. The Apostle Paul or Apostle John writes in John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, beloved, we... Love Him, because He first loved us. We know that He loves us because He sent His own Son. As John states in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. <coughs> Friends, the question is, have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Have you trusted Him? If you have, He calls you to walk in love. He calls you to walk in purity. Have you trusted in Christ and your salvation? Are you burdened by your sin? Has this world made you weary? Christ Himself beckons you to come unto Him. Matthew, 20, Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you can certainly trust in his love. And you can walk in faith, obeying Him, <clears throat> and knowing that He wants our best. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he says this, <clears throat> Though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. End quote. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this early afternoon I praise you father it's clear paul is calling us according to your word to walk in love 
And part of walking in love is to walk in purity. Loving, one, loving you above all and loving one another as beloved children. Looking to Christ as our example. Being willing to give up everything. Being willing to give up our wants, needs, and desires. To replace them by your desires. Your will. Father, may we be a church that walks in purity. May we be a church that forsakes all these worldly things. Whether it be our worldly conduct or whether it be our speech. And Lord, we would trust in you and you alone. Father, we thank you for sending your son to the cross. We thank you for saving sinners. We thank you for saving us. In Christ's name, amen.